Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Joel, and I am one of the pastors here at Res City. Uh, thankful to have you joining us this morning on this uh, deceptively sunny Monday morning. I know, I feel like if you've read uh, or seen the Narnia movies, like there's that one where like, like winter never ends. And I'm like, are we living in Narnia right now? Uh, it kind of feels like it sometimes. But anyway, glad to have you with us this morning. I hope uh, the presence uh, uh, gathered here together and God's, God's grace will kind of warm us all <laughs> because uh, we can't find it anywhere else apparently. So uh, let me pray for us and we'll hop into the sermon this morning. Lord, thank you for being with us this morning. Uh, thank you that your presence is with us. We just ask as we study your word this morning, as we grow to more, know more about who you are, God, and how you act with us and how we can uh, walk in a way that is um, in line with you and your, your presence and your comfort and your grace, God, that you would, um, you would just speak to us, Lord, and help us to, to know what it means to, to follow you well. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's this, this thing, and I don't know, maybe you've heard of it, maybe not. I've been reading some stuff about it recently. Um, it's called the, the myth of the founder or the founder's myth. Um, and it, it's usually something I guess you hear kind of more like in Silicon Valley, but it's, it's, it's about tech startups that kind of go on to blow up. But it, it's not just um, stuck there. And the, the idea is that you look at some of these companies and things that have been created um, and, you know, these giant companies and they're, they're, must, they're, they're so pervasive, they're so large, they've done so much in the world, there must be some like, brilliant backstory to it, right? That's what we must, what must assume. And so the story usually goes, it gets kind of told and perpetuated um, that a brilliant, ambitious tech whiz is born to be an entrepreneur, they drop out of college, they bet everything on an idea and a startup, and it ends up changing the world and generating massive wealth for themselves. Um, and the stories become well-known, they become kind of legendary. So for example, one of the really famous ones is the story of Apple. The story goes that the founders, um, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, built their first computer in a garage. And actually there's a similar story for Google and Hewlett Packard as well, kind of when you, you kind of hear the stories that are told. And as the story goes, all they really had was their grit and their genius. They didn't have any help. It was just them in a garage and they built something incredible, massive. And we're, you know, we we have them to thank for so much in the world today. The phones in your pocket right now came from these founders, almost sort of like godlike efforts uh, to, to create this on their own. Um, now this, if you study it, there's actually been like some really interesting research done on it. Uh, the, the myth of the founder and its perpetuation actually comes from a writer named, named Ayn Rand. She's kind of controversial. Some people love her, some people really hate her. Um, but basically, she believed that there were people like this, kind of great figures and personalities. They're almost superhuman, and they build and sustain our world, and we kind of need them in order to survive. Uh, everything would sort of descend into chaos without them. Now, that myth, that story, when it gets applied to people and companies, it's really, really powerful. It's really kind of, you know, it draws people in, and it makes you want to buy their product, too. Like, if you think about it, there's a good reason to kind of talk about it. Now, the problem is when you dig into a lot of these stories, they're not actually accurate. This is not always how these, these places were created. So, for example, the Steve Wozniak, the guy who, one of the guys who started Apple, he's come out and said that the, the story that's been told about them creating this in their garage, it's mostly untrue. <laughs> um, and it kind of served a purpose to make Apple what it is today, but it's really not accurate to how Apple got started. A lot of and, and the Google and HP stories, are, there's some, to some degree as well, it's not totally the way that it's been told. A lot of times, 
the work that happened was, you know, maybe some of it happened in a garage, but most of it happened actually designed at some nearby state-of-the-art lab. And they were actually getting a lot of help at these places. And so these kinds of godlike figures are a myth, right? They're smart people. They're very ambitious people for sure. But also when you study the story, they're products of the time they lived in and some good luck, right? Just think about how much the internet influenced the rise of so much of this stuff. Right? Without the internet, you know, these companies would never have taken off the way that they have. And that was just a lot of government-funded research, actually, that went into building the internet. Okay? But it's a very American thing, I think, to eat this stuff up, to kind of venerate people and resonate with their stories like this. Because I think what it does is it kind of resonates with a part of us that kind of wants to be transcended as well and kind of self-made, to do it our way apart from anyone else, to be free and independent and to kind of generate massive success for ourselves by kind of going out and doing it, you know, even if everyone else thinks we're wrong or crazy, but we did it our way. Um, another kind of titanic figure in, in American society is Frank Sinatra, and he actually has a song about this. Um, he has, a, this is just a line from the song at the end, but the whole song is kind of about this. And now the end is here, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll make it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. And more, much more, I did it. I did it my way. Okay? That's kind of how he views his life at the very end, is he had all this success, and he did it his way. He didn't let anyone else tell him what to do. Now, if we're honest, I think there's a part of us, at least, that wants that, too. Right? We, want to, we want to do it our way. We want to succeed doing it our way, even if a lot of people think we're wrong or we didn't get any help in doing it. In fact, that might actually be better if we had no help getting there. Now, I say all this to kind of set up the sermon today. We're, we're continuing on in a series called According to Grace. We started it last week, and it's, what it is really is it's a character study of God. It's supposed to help us understand who God is better and to see his pattern to act according to grace. We took that from a phrase in Romans 4.16. And we're going through stories of big figures in the Old Testament to see that pattern and learn about how God acts in grace and kind of see what it looks like for God to act the same way towards us now and um, how we can expect him to kind of act in grace towards us as well. And last week we talked about Abraham, right? This is one of the most important figures in the whole Bible, the father of the Jewish nation. But right up there with Abraham in terms of importance is Moses. Okay, and so we're going to talk about Moses today. Movies have been made about him. Um, the Prince of Egypt. I don't know if that, you know some of you guys grew up watching The Prince of Egypt. Actually a great movie, I think. Still holds up really well. Um, the, the songs are pretty good too. Uh, even older than that, The Ten Commandments. Okay, another very iconic movie. No singing in that one. Um, and then the, the, the newest one that came out is uh, Exodus with, with Christian Bale. Right, like you know, uh, that one didn't do as well, um, but it wasn't a. T I didn't think it was a terrible movie. It was okay. Um, Moses. Moses is a liberator. Okay, that's how he's known. He's a breaker of chains. He's a leader. He's a visionary. He's a great prophet. He delivered a just and wise law to a nation. He's a founder, and he has his own great story. Now, we could think he's one of those great kind of force of nature people that we would put up there with all these other great people in history, right? These founders, these titanic personalities who kind of build and sustain the world, who we need in order to survive. But when you look at it, Moses' story isn't really about him at all and his titanic effort to do all this stuff his way. 
But it's a story about God's power and grace. And to kind of read it any other way is to kind of, you know, start some founder's myth about Moses that isn't true, that isn't actually how the story goes. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Moses the liberator according to God's grace. We're going to study it in depth, and then we're going to ponder over some takeaways, okay? So let's, let's hop into it. I want to give a little bit of background on Moses in case you don't know the story, or maybe it's, it's, it's fuzzy to you, you've heard it before and you don't remember it. You kind of need some of this stuff to understand some of the passages we'll be in today. Um, Moses' people, the Israelites, or the Hebrews, they're now a nation. If you remember last week, we kind of talked about the start of that nation in the person of Abraham. And we talked about how it was truly God's grace that created this nation. It, it, it only existed, it only was formed because of the grace that God had used uh, through Abraham to give it a start. But at this point in the story, several hundred years later, they are, this, this, peop, this nation has been created, but they are slaves to a much larger and more powerful nation, Egypt. If you're Egypt, or if you're trying to keep this slave people in line, uh, you want to keep their young men in check. Right? Because if enough of them kind of get together and decide they want to fight back, that's when things might get dangerous for this nation of Israel. So, or sorry, for the nation of Egypt. So um, there's this big purge of boys under the age of two to just try to keep the male population in check. And Moses is born during this. And his mom knows he's going to get killed. He's going to have to be executed if she doesn't do something. So what she does, she doesn't even really have a plan, it seems like. She creates a basket and she puts him in the basket and like, lets him float down the river and just kind of hopes someone might find him. Just hopes that he can survive and have somewhat of a life instead of being killed. And th- her hopes and dreams come to fruition. Someone does find her. Okay? But probably the last person she would have ever expected to find this child. Because it's not just anyone. It's the daughter of the king of Egypt, the pharaoh. And she takes him in as her own child and he grows up as part of Egypt's court. Okay? And there's a lot of irony, actually, when you read the story, right? This decree of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is to try to keep the Hebrews in, in, stuck uh, in slavery. It's actually the domino effect that kind of leads to exactly the opposite of what Pharaoh was hoping, right? This is kind of the story that kicks off God's story of setting his people free. And I think it's a bit of a foreshadowing of often like what our best wisdom accomplishes for us a lot of times, right? Something that is unforeseen and not really our goal at all. That's kind of the irony that's taking place here when we kind of, kind of peek behind the curtain. Now, we don't get a lot of info on Moses' formative years, right? But apparently, while he was growing up in Pharaoh's court, at some point, he came to an understanding of his heritage. He knew he was a Hebrew. And when, you know, when that happened, or you know, whether that was something only he knew, or it was kind of common knowledge about him in the Egyptian court, we don't really know, okay? That's the juicy stuff in the movies that they love to kind of dig into. But scripture doesn't really uh, kind of explain it to us. But when you think about it, like, it is really fascinating piece of his identity, right? This is a man who probably struggled to bridge the gap between these two identities he had, right? He's ethnically Hebrew, right? Like this group of people who are all slaves, but he's also a member of the oppressor's family. You can imagine that that was actually a really difficult tension for him to manage, okay? Now, that's where we're going to pick the story up today. We're going to start in, in the book of Exodus, which is kind of has this, this part of the story, at least of Moses's life, in, in verse 11. So one day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, the Hebrews, and he watched them at hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Now, Moses, 
understandably, is upset. He's angry at seeing this, of his, someone of his own race being beaten, being treated as property, right, like an animal. And this sort of righteous anger stirs up in him, and he decides he's going to do something about it. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Okay, so Moses kills this Egyptian slave driver in secret. And you can start to imagine like, what he must have been feeling here, right? This kind of mixture of satisfaction that he did something to kind of stop what was going on, but also probably some, some fear, like obviously some fear. He hid the body, right? And we'll find he, want, he was hoping to keep this a secret. But you can't fault him for his desire to take action, to try to solve the problem on his own, because he's right, Okay, this, is, this is something appalling. Something needed to be done. Whether Moses had this kind of bubbling up in him for a long time, and it just kind of came out in this moment, or this was the moment where he realized, hey, I have been trying to rationalize this for too long, and it's not okay. I have to do something. I have to stop what's taking place here. We don't really know. We don't get that sort of in, internal look at, at Moses. But I think it's fair to say that he's not wrong for wanting to hop in and try to do something about what's going on here, right? I think what is wrong is that he decides to do it in his own way and in his own power, right? He thinks he can solve the problem on his own, to go kill someone, to act in retaliation, to do it his way, to use his best you know, idea of how to fix the problem, all of that. And what's taking place here is he's acting in a way that God never asked him to act and that wasn't born out of God's pattern of grace. And so, as we'll see, it was doomed to fail as a result. Okay, so the next day, Moses went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. This is verses 13 and 14. He asked one of the, one, the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Okay, so Moses finds these two Hebrew men kind of in some kind of a fight. And, and, and I don't know if he's starting to think of himself now as like some sort of liberator, like someone who maybe should start to be more proactive to step into some leadership role over his people because of what he's done. I don't know if he's feeling good about himself or what, but something spurs him to go in and to figure he's the guy to kind of solve this problem between these two Hebrews. And he's surprised to find that just kind of what he had done, merely killing oppressor, evening the odds, doing it his own way, has not fixed the problem. Actually, it's kind of all blown up in his face. Because now people know what he did. And he's about to be in some trouble. Okay? And even the thing that might have saved him in that moment, right? If that he'd inspired his fellow Hebrews to kind of rise up, start a revolution with him, that's not happened either. They're like, dude, like what do you think you're doing? Like, do you think you're in charge of us now because of this or something? His action has not inspired his fellow Hebrews to change or to see him as their savior. Like, nothing has changed because of what he's done. Nothing at all. And as news spreads, the king of Egypt discovers this and he tries to track down and execute Moses. So Moses, he books it out of there. He takes off, kind of probably intending never to return to Egypt, thinking this, you know, this is done. I, this, this blew up in my face. No, thank you. He runs off in the desert hoping to start over. And it's here that the camera pans back from Moses and onto God. Okay? And the story is about to shift here and not just be about what Moses is doing, but what God's grace is going to do through Moses. Okay? During that long period, this is chapter, verses 23 and 25, during that long period that Moses was gone, 
It's a long piece, several decades that Moses is gone. The king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Okay, God remembers the grace that he had given to Abraham. The stuff we talked about in last week's sermon. And as his people cry out for help to him, God wants to do something about this slavery. He is as appalled as Moses was by what's happening to the Hebrews. Because I think it's fair to say, it's very fair to say, God hates slavery. He hates oppression. He hates injustice. Especially when his covenant people are involved. Right? Whether they're victims or oppressors. We find God kind of uh, speak to them harshly, you know, speak harshly, challenge, uh, challenge people in both of those types of situations throughout the Bible. I think his grace it wants to stand up to injustice and the status quo. Okay, I don't know how you really read through your whole Bible and not come to that conclusion. Right? This stuff is all products of sin. All the stuff that we talked about in that series that we did uh, you know, a few weeks ago. So God remembers what his grace had begun in Abraham, and he's now going to stir to do an act of grace once more. But instead of acting because Moses has chosen to, God chooses to act, as we'll see, through Moses. And he isn't going to just bless whatever Moses wants to do. He's going to do it his way. True freedom is only going to come out of God's grace. Okay? And this is significant, that we see the grace that's taking place here. All right? We saw last week what grace is, that God will do something through someone who is seemingly unworthy. Okay, we saw that in Abraham and Sarah's story. Moses, at this point in the story, is a murderer and he's a fugitive. Okay? And really up to this point, he's kind of a nobody. Right? We can kind of speculate as to what it meant for him to be part of the royal court, but we're not kind of told that he's any sort of special person in the text. We're just kind of told he's, he grew up as part of the royal court. So, you know, all he really seems to be is the boy who lived. That's just kind of really all who he is, right? That's all who, that he's really presented as in the story. So if Moses was applying to God for the job of, like, liberator of Israel, and if God was like, you know, many people today, he'd see what was in his past, that Moses was a, a failed liberator and a murderer on top of that, and he'd say, you know, I'm sorry, dude, you just don't really pass the purity test. I'm looking for someone who's maybe a little bit less controversial and who maybe is a little bit better at this whole liberation thing. You're not the right person for this job. Okay, but remember what grace is. It comes to people who haven't done anything to deserve or merit it. And in fact, they're often unworthy, and it makes it very counterintuitive. Okay, yet God delights, I think, and we see this pattern throughout Scripture. He delights to act like that, taking the people who seem the most unworthy and using them. And that's exactly what he does here with Moses. Okay, so we come back to Moses. Some time has passed. He's a shepherd, and he's actually started a new family in this place called Midian. And you can imagine, he's probably been living in this, you know, feeling of failure of what had happened for a long time now. This kind of feeling of shame, of being a, really a fugitive, just kind of on the run, um, kind of probably, you, know, you, you assume he had nightmares about this, right? This has probably kept him up at night. Okay, but he's a shepherd now. He's living in this new place. He's, he, he probably thinks he's started over. Okay, Exodus 3, we move into chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn out. 
So Moses is, you know, one day he's off doing shepherd stuff, kind of what he did every day. And God appears to him in the form of a bush that won't quit burning. And the fire doesn't consume the bush. And it's very odd, and it gets Moses' attention. And at that moment, God's messenger appears to Moses, and God speaks to them. And this is what they what he says. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard their crying, them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about the suffering. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. That's verses 7 and 10. God tells Moses, I'm the God of your ancestors, and it's time. We're going to do this thing that you tried to do before. Okay? Now here's what this is. It's a commissioning, which had never happened before when Moses had tried to act on his own. God is commissioning Moses to go and do what Moses already tried to do through his own power and through his own way and had failed. And now instead, he was going to go do it in God's power and in God's way. Okay? There was going to be no founder's myth to this story. It would not be that Moses did this in his own power, in his own genius, in his own strength, in his own way, kind of planning it out in a garage or something like that. It would be because God was with him and would be done in God's power. Now Moses protests, whether it's not, you know, whether this is, you know, not, not the way he wanted, or I think probably more likely he's just, he's afraid from last time and he's kind of clinging to that failure, whatever it is. Um, he later quips, he doesn't think he's the right person to go to Pharaoh. Like he's pretty sure Pharaoh wouldn't care what some vagabond fugitive has to say. And he kind of goes back and forth with God. We won't get into all of this today, but God tells him he's going to provide him with some signs that he would do to validate Moses, and he would predispose the hearts of the people of Egypt towards this purpose. And God's main response is simply that he would be with Moses. Okay? But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go out to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. God is creating significance for Moses, for someone who, who feels insignificant and in a lot of ways was insignificant. God is creating significance for Moses, not by inspiring him to look deep inside himself and like find the hero within or something like that, but by being with him and creating significance for Moses with his presence and his grace. Moses was not going to be able to do this on his own, but Moses wasn't going to be on his own. That's the point. Moses was just to obey and do what God asked him to do, and God would be the one to make it all happen. And spoiler alert, okay, if you're familiar with the story, you know that's exactly what takes place. All this comes to pass. Egypt set, the Pharaoh sets the people of Israel free. They are able to leave, and God is with them throughout the whole thing. Now, it's not a walk in a park for Moses, okay? And, and maybe the hardest part for him is once they get out of Egypt and he has to actually lead these people, things get to be pretty difficult. But God's grace accomplishes what it starts out to do, which is setting these captives free. We're not going to get into the rest of that story today. Okay? For the rest of the sermon, what I actually want us to do is to stay in this moment okay, and talk about what, we, what can be learned here. All right? I think there's a lot that we can sort of take from this story. Uh, one thing uh, in, that's going on here, I think, in this commissioning it might be more important than anything else, okay? And this is a point that I kind of—I read something about this six or seven years ago, and it's actually, I actually took that as one of the foundational ways in which I try to view what I'm doing in my ministry and try how to think about w w what I'm doing, right, and how I'm doing it. I come back to the story a lot, okay? N.T. Wright notes how Moses is standing in awe 
at the bush here. He's standing in God's presence. He's standing before the beauty and the power and the majesty of God in order that he may go stand without fear before the pomp and might of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And the idea is that if Moses can stand before God and be filled with that grace to see that power, he can stand before anyone and anything because of it. Standing before God at this burning bush, it makes Moses into something new, something that he wasn't before when he tried to do this all on his own. It takes a guy that tried to act on his own power in his own way and has been broken from it, right? He's been living in that brokenness for a long time now, and it remakes him. It restores him. It refreshes him so that he doesn't have to fear anything. And all of this is grace all the way through. Okay, now if we're people who follow Jesus, right, then we are like Moses, okay? Because we also stand before a tree where God's presence rests, but it's not a burning bush. It's something better. Okay, we after all, and this is N.T. Wright quoting him, we stand before a yet more glorious tree, the tree of Calvary, the cross. And we stand before the tree of God's grace where his glory in his son is revealed to us. And we, broken as we are from uh, trying to make things happen on our own power, trying to go in our own way, or maybe as victims of sin, in some way, right? We talked about that in that last series from, from other people's harm that's been kind of put onto us that we now Im, are, is embodied in us and that we're living out of in some way, right? We are going to be continually transformed by that encounter of going back to that tree again and again because we're going to experience God's grace even though we don't deserve it. We're going to be remade. We're going to be refreshed and we're going to go and live in that power standing in whatever it is that God calls us to. Whether it's big and small, we're going to be standing in that power, standing in that grace, just like Moses. I want to spend the rest of the sermon here kind of talking about what it looks like for us to live in this grace in regards to doing good. Okay, like Moses wanted to do, but who had failed in and then received God's grace and was commissioned to do so. Okay, and I want to, ex- I want to kind of explain it in this way. I want to use this terminology for it. W- when we are in God's grace, God takes our discontent and he turns it into what we could call holy discontent, okay? So there's a difference between these things, right? Uh, Mark Sayers, is a, he's a pastor in Australia, and he, he defines holy discontent this way. It's the realization that the only balm that can heal our resentment is God and his presence and his grace, and then going out and walking in that, okay? Think about Moses' story, right? He had discontent, very understandable discontent. He initially wanted to do a good work, liberating these slaves, right? Now, there's lots of stuff in the world that we could feel discontent about as well. There's lots of good work that needs to be done in the world. Captives need to be set free in both, I think, a a, a literal sense, in a physical way, but also in a deeply spiritual sense. There's so much, right? There are issues in every city, every neighborhood, every family, every person, right? There are deep issues in the church, even, unfortunately. It's everywhere. And I think we, we, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. I don't, I don't have to spend a lot of time explaining to you all the stuff, all the good work in the world that needs to be done, all the discontent that we can feel on a daily basis with all the stuff that's going on around us. Okay, but Moses' story shows us that God desires our action. He wants us to go do good, but he wants it to be response to his action, transformed by in the pattern of his grace. If it doesn't flow out of his grace in the way of Jesus, filled with his power, Ultimately, it's not going to work. 
right? And in the short term, it might feel good, right? We deal with discontent a lot of times by, I think, trying to do something that makes us feel good, right? Moses stopped the guy that was killing, uh, he's killing that other dude, right? And I think he thought, like, it seemed like it solved the problem. And, like, he probably felt good about himself. He probably felt like he did something good. He probably felt very self-righteous, probably, right? And I think we live in a society that is very moral. It is very legalistic, right? It's very righteous. We, we, you know, and you see that both on the right and the left, I think, okay? If we kind of want to put it on that political spectrum, people want to be righteous, okay? They feel discontent, and we want to go and solve it, but often we're trying to solve it in our own way. And a lot of times, when we feel some discontent, what, what we do, we do mostly because it f- makes us feel righteous, and superior, right? I think we see that a lot of times in the world, right? A society that thinks it's very moral, thinks it's very righteous, but it's mostly doing the good work it does to make itself feel good about itself, okay? No good is going to be accomplished through doing that. Moses had quickly learned, right? Sometimes it happens quickly, sometimes it doesn't. He quickly learned that what he had done, probably to make himself feel better in that moment, uh, had done nothing to solve the real problem, Right? He'd actually made things worse for himself by doing it his way. And I think a lot of times when we do stuff our way, even if we don't really want to admit it to other people, we see the ways in which it has not gone how we hoped. We've actually maybe made things worse. We've had unforeseen consequences that come up. Instead, we need to go to God and the tree that represents his grace and be refreshed and made new and learn from Jesus. To receive hope for the future, for a world that it's going to one day be restored. We call that heaven. It's the hope of a world that God is going to come in his grace and restore everything back to where it's supposed to be. It'll be a work of God. And we're going to receive hope in the present that God is working as well. To be recommissioned over and over again and then walk in that grace and hope and wisdom. And I think when we stand before Jesus, that discontent that we feel is going to get turned into holy discontent. We receive a deep understanding of how far off we are from God's glory and how far we've maybe fallen, how we have contributed to some of the problems we see in the world, some of the discontent we feel. We find we're not as innocent as we might think we are. Our sins, our limits, the pain done to us by sin, we see how it's all shaped us, but we also have a hope that God's love can remake us and the world. And when that happens, we can go do good in God's way, out of his grace and in his way. Now, I think we learned from this story as well a few other things about how God works in grace and how it redeems our discontent. And I want to draw some of that stuff out here as we kind of close the sermon, okay? First of all, notice what's behind all of this. It's prayer. It's not just Moses' discontent. It's all of Israel. It's this coordinated effort from a group of people that are crying out to God in discontent, believing that only his grace would give them hope, right? We see this in verses 23 and 25. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham. Okay, God moves when his people cry out to him, when they wrestle and they struggle in prayer with him. Okay? He doesn't dismiss the things that we find important. He hears, he remembers, he responds. Now, this might, maybe you've, you've recoiled at this, right? There's this kind of, I think, I think it's a false dichotomy, but we hear sometimes things like thoughts and prayers or trusting God pitted against actually getting out there and doing something. And we kind of talk as if these two things can't go together or shouldn't, they actually don't need each other in some way. But I don't think these two things should be played off 
against each other. And I don't think the story does either. It's not that God wants us to just do nothing and just trust him and just pray and, and not get in there. Okay? It's, I think he wants us to do it in his way and in his grace, which means we need to go to him. We need to trust him. We need to be transformed by that before we go out. Okay? And I think this is crucial and people often miss it. Okay? But it really starts when our discontent is reflected to God in prayer. If we're not praying, I really do think we're going to see God move less. But when we do pray, I think we should expect to see God move more. Okay? But not always in the way that we expect and not always according to our timeline. All right? And that's the second thing I think we see in this story about what it looks like when God moves in his grace. Okay? Sometimes doing it in God's way means being willing to wait on him. Okay? Sometimes if we want to go in God's way, that means we have to wait. We have to trust him. Right? God is not always going to act when we think he will or should. There's going to be a lot of times when, uh, you know, when, when there was a lot of time, okay, between when Moses tried to go and liberate his fellow Hebrews and then when God actually called on him to do it, right? Remember we said decades had passed. And really, I think, just think about the ordinariness of the moment when God actually approaches uh, Moses, okay? It wasn't probably when Moses was feeling like this was the right time to go do it. And he probably felt like in his mind, he'd long since moved off from this dream of wanting to help his people out and set them free from slavery. Okay, just think about this moment. Moses is tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. Okay, he's doing shepherd stuff. He's just kind of doing the daily grind. Probably wasn't even thinking about this at all. He probably was chasing some sheep down. He was mad at the sheep for being sheep. Okay, and then God shows up to him. He walked this path hundreds of times, and on the 101st time, God chose to come to him and spring his grace on him. I think what that tells us is it's okay to wait on God. Okay, we, we live in an age that is defined by immediacy, right? We, we have microwaves. We can make food for ourselves and heat it up in 10 seconds, right? We live in an age where 10 seconds for a video to buffer is going to make you choose to not watch the video, right? Be honest. Be honest. You just, you can't even put up with 10 seconds of a video buffering, right? Our, intentions, our attention spans are incredibly short. And we get this sort of tyranny, I think, of urgency of the now and needing everything to be perfect right now. And if it isn't, we get so frustrated and we move on. Okay? We think God doesn't care or he's not moving. That's not true, okay? God isn't like us. We can't force him to come and act when we want, right? What we need us to do is faithfully walk with Jesus, I think, day by day, going back to the cross and being willing to not go solve the world's problems just when it feels most right to you, okay? It works, I think, also sometimes in ways we don't expect. God will call us to move when things don't feel right, okay? I think that's probably more likely where Moses was. And you think about the people of Israel crying out to God for decades, right? And all the while, God had been moving this whole time, right? When we read the story about Moses not being killed, uh, along with all the other two-year-old boys, right? We see God is moving to keep him safe. He's setting this plan in motion, but it took a long time. It did not come according to the timeline that anyone else in the story expected it to, but God was still working. He was still accomplishing it. Hey, we've talked a lot about the day-to-day, right, in, in, in some of our sermon series that we've done here in the last year or so, right? The He Refreshes My Soul series. We talked a lot about walking with the shepherd, okay? We use that ink language a lot, walking with the shepherd. That's what we find in Psalm 23, 
That's what we kind of use for that sermon series. And then this one we did, Walk by the Spirit, okay? Again, that imagery of walking with God, walking with His Spirit, walking with His presence, okay? With consistent good rhythm and pace and direction. That's what we talked about, okay? That's what it looks like to be in God's presence. Well, I think when we walk with God, we, we are supposed to be unhurried. Okay? I think that's what it means to walk with God, but not to a point where we're not in anticipation that God might move in some way, all right? I think we are supposed to walk with God unhurried, but also with anticipation that he could move at any moment, even at one we don't expect or at a time we don't necessarily think is right. And what we're supposed to do is just walk by that mountain, by that tree, all the time, seeking to be renewed over and over again, knowing that God might want to work something through us in one of those moments. He might call us to do something like he did to Moses and be ready to go. And when that happens, there's no guarantee it's all going to go perfectly or smoothly, right? There's no guarantee that there won't be more issues maybe that come up because we've chosen to follow God, okay? But we know he's with us. We know he's with us throughout all of that. And I think that can give us a hope to follow him wherever he leads, okay? It's good and it's right. If we take God's grace seriously, we will respond because we stand before the tree of Calvary and we are people who are changed. I think we know that's the only real hope that we have. So to close today, remember in the first sermon we said that this was a meditation on the character of God and how he accomplishes his will in the world, right? What do we see when we look at God here? Well, we see, like what Brett said in the, in the announcements this morning, that God's the hero. He's the real hero of the story. It's not Moses. Okay? We see God act in grace and this pattern of grace that he operates in. Okay? We see that God's grace changes things. Okay? It takes the status quo and it throws it on its head. Right? It changes, it challenges it. It redeems mistakes and failures and shame. It sets people free from them. Okay? It takes Moses, someone who's feeling brokenness, and it makes him into someone who could confidently go and follow God and set people free. It sets about restoring the world, undoing injustice, leading people to meet the Lord of the world as he sets them free, both physically and, I think, spiritually. We learn that God desires to restore the world, but not always in our ways, not in the ways that we always intend, not just for our satisfaction, not just to make us feel good. And as we stand before the tree of Calvary and our discontent is turned into holy discontent, we start to take on God's character too. Okay? We start to become people of grace. That starts to become our pattern. We start to become restorers. Okay, we're going to talk about this later in the series. Julie's going to talk about this a little bit more. But I think it's worth noting here now as we close. As we learn God's character and pattern of grace, we start to live in that. We start to be people who are changed by that. And that, I think, is really cool and powerful. Because I think when we walk in that path, we're going to see God do some really, I think, amazing stuff through us as we walk in his way and in his grace. Uh, we're going to enter into a time of, of communion. And, uh, and as we do that, as always, we, we take communion. And it's a chance for us, really, to stand before the tree of Calvary, okay? To, to think about God's presence resting in Jesus on that cross, his body broken and his blood shed for us so that uh, we could be people who are transformed, that we could be people who receive his grace so that we can go walk in that in whatever uh, way God is going to call us to do. Okay, so as, as you come before that tree today and take communion, just think, just ask God, seek him out in his presence during the work, time of worship. Is there anything you're calling me to do as a result of this? Is there anything that you want to refresh me for that I can go uh, 
lights unlocking your growth zone. Okay? Just be thinking about that and see if the Holy Spirit challenges you to anything. All right? And if you'd like to talk to someone and pray about it, we'll actually have uh, someone in the back um, offering up prayer as well. So please take advantage of that this morning. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you that you are, again, a God of grace. You don't give to us what we deserve, Lord, and you don't hold back from us because uh, of what we've done, Lord, or, or what we haven't done. God, you are a God who is always acting in grace towards us. And as we go um, and seek out your presence, as we go before the tree of Calvary, we will see that over and over again, God. I pray for anyone here that needs to experience your grace right now, that needs to go before the tree of Calvary to be refreshed, to be made new. Maybe they have some discontent, and you want to turn that into some kind of holy discontent, Lord. You want to make it new. You want to uh, take it and, and use it for your own glory, God, to refresh them in some way. I pray that you would do that this morning, Lord. Please, God, please move through your spirit and your grace, we pray in Jesus' name.